Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. And if not, well, then welcome back. The two of us have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 2017 Mexican dark fairy tale. Please go easy on me. Um, Well then... AKA Tigers Are Not Afraid. The film was written and directed by Isa Lopez. It stars Paula Laura, Juan Ramon Lopez, and Ayanes Guerrero. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Specific trigger warnings for this episode can be found in the show notes, and let me just say there are there are triggers. <laughs> yes. Oh god, Triggered. yeah. Yeah, so, <laughs> okay, are you still here? Great, then let's get this morning started. Abby, would you be so kind as to read the plot summary? Absolutely. Estrella, a young Mexican girl, discovers she has the gift, or curse, of three wishes after her teacher gives her three pieces of white chalk during an attack on her school by the cartel. Estrella's first wish is that her mother, who has disappeared, returns. That evening, she sees a ghostly apparition covered in blood and wrapped in plastic. Now scared of her home, Estrella leaves to join a group of lost boys who reside nearby. At first, the boys don't want her to join until she proves herself. And that's when Estrella decides to use her second wish. And then, reluctantly, her third. Dun, dun, dun! Uh, let me just say, like... <laughs> This movie destroyed me for like three days. Yes, I had to pause it after a, a certain death. Yeah. And I was like, well, I guess I'll come back to this film later. <laughs> <laughs> and then I came back to the film and another death happened. And I was like, oh, my God. So, yeah, it's rough. It's rough. If, you know, you have to really watch um, your triggers with this, you know, children in horror there's this okay listen first of all i guess we'll get into some spoiler territories so like if you haven't watched it watch it there's this guy that i follow on youtube uh it, his channel is called your movie sucks and <laughs> part of his like rants that he goes on is that people are too scared to kill children in movies <laughs> oh my god <laughs> and he's just like it's so callous, but, you know, but it's fiction. That's the thing. It's like kids in movies dying is fiction. Do yeah. 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 So it's like, he's just like, listen, if it makes the story more like it, like if it makes the story more meteor, you know, or like it motivates people or like there is a real threat because the thing is, is that as an audience member, you are not scared for the kids because you just think, well, Nobody ever kills kids in movies, so they're going to be fine. Yes. So you don't, you're not invested in the story and in the art and in the, 
in the film, you know, you just kind of mm -hmm. passively watch it. But if there's a real threat of danger, then there is like more drama, you know, that as an audience member, you're like, nobody is safe, including the children. So like, I'm invested in the story. And so that's like his reasoning behind it. It's like, it's not be to be like mean or callous or anything. It's that in the in story form, the art of storytelling, if there is a real threat, you as the audience are more invested. Mm -hmm. And absolutely, you're, you're more connected to the actual tragedy that's happening as well. And uh, Lopez doesn't, she doesn't shy away from that. Like we mentioned earlier, um, she's not exploitative of it, which is good, but she mm -hmm. isn't shy showing the actual like, terrible things that happen, you know? Yeah. So, um, and you do become invested, then you're like, okay, well, nobody here is safe. So I really want to find out how this ends. So yeah. I know. Oh my god. But yeah, it's still very sad. I know. <laughs> it's still, oh, it's still I know. very upsetting. <laughs> it's reality though. You're right. Like if we are gonna be inundated with violence all the time, then we also and I'm not saying that like certain violence doesn't matter because it happens to adults, but like I think we all can agree that the worst violence we can think of happens to children because they are so innocent. So I think that this film is important for that reason. And films like it are important because de death comes for us all. It does. <laughs> so, you know, um, yeah. It's obviously very traumatic and, and terrible when it happens in the real world. But I think in, in art in general, it's like with in in film a good example is like the new evil dead and i won't if you're haven't seen it skip ahead a little but i don't know i just i just want to say okay i don't want to spoil it because it just came out it's like new movie so it's like i don't want to spoil anything but like yeah that's a good i guess that's a good example of what we're talking about here so anyway that's just like what i don't know that that's all i'll say but like sometimes you just need Sometimes you just need a little bit of threat, a little feel, a little bit of, of, of a threat to the children in the story. And that's a good thing. In real life, not so good. In a story, yes. Right. right. Um, but this is based on true events. You know, the cartel is very, very real and children being victims of it are also very, very real. So you kind of have to have that threat Anyway, you know, Evil Dead is not a true threat. The cartel is a true threat to children. So, yes, exactly. With all that said, let's get into the production of this film. Oh. Uh, so according to Jumko Ogata Aguilar, quote, Tigers Are Not Afraid was written and directed by Isa Lopez, who is better known for her comedies, Secondary Effects, which came out in 2006, and Casi Divas, which came out in 2008. Lopez's Wikipedia page says that she studied archaeology for about two years until, quote, the pull of cinema was too strong to resist, unquote. She abandoned archaeology and enrolled in Mexico's National University Film School, where she obtained a BA in film directing and screenwriting. That is a huge, like, 180, like, she, <laughs> yeah. from science to, yes. to film. You know, I think that's great. Um, yes. Listen, we need more women in science, but we also need more women in film. So, <laughs> yes, that's a sweet ass crossover. To be right. honest, like, what the heck? 
Oh my god! Also, I'm. I was thinking archaeology was architecture. <laughs> oh <laughs> no, it's very like, different. Oh, nice designing buildings to designing films. Okay, I I can kind of no see. from digging up dinosaurs to <laughs> nope. Yeah, that's not the same thing. <laughs> oh my god! All right, continue. <laughs> So she obtained a BA in film directing and screenwriting. Um, After her degree, she completed a two-year graduate program for dramatic writing. So she has all the credentials. Um, Lopez began co-writing telenovelas and TV shows um, at Televisa. And in 2003, she wrote the film Ladies' Night, which was a box office success uh, in Mexico, becoming the fifth biggest grossing Mexican film of 2003 and 2004. So, yeah, I think she she did pretty good for herself. Yeah. Um, Ogata Aguilar continues saying, quote, when asked why she made a film on this subject, speaking of tigers, she said, quote, you never see their stories in the media. There's an abundance of stories about the cartels and the drug lords, and it's even been romanticized. But one thing you don't see is the cost of that, and especially with children. So I felt that was an absolute necessity. And then the other thing is my deep love for genre cinema. Until then, I had been able to express that love, so I was per- so I was the perfect vehicle and I couldn't stop myself, unquote. Um, and to be clear, Lopez was specifically um, talking about the Netflix show Narcos, you know, when it came to shows that were romanticizing um, the cartel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's basically that show was what kind of like broke the camel's back, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. And that's why she made Tigers Are Not Afraid. Yeah, you know, I didn't realize just how problematic those kinds of shows are when portraying Latin culture in that way and i guess it's because i i'm not sure about you but i know that i grew up hearing a lot about how prevalent the drug culture was in those areas of the world so um i kind of got desensitized to what the actual culture really is when you take away that history of the cartel and these pla- all these places like have been broken so badly by all of the attention we've given um to how bad those drug wars are but like we don't look at all the little microcultures like what the kids and tigers are going through so we end up seeing a lot of the hollywood lore and um kind of less of the after effects of like the devastation and i i don't think I don't want to like discredit the journalists and stuff like that who try to share as much information as possible, but it definitely is kind of glamorized by Hollywood. Um, so, I mean, as difficult as it was to watch this film because of the violence, I'm glad that I did because, you know, it's not there for the Netflix ratings or like the machismo of it. Like it's an accurate look at what many people are afraid to see. And that's kind of the blowback from you know how how much the cartels are glamorized well yeah i mean i i actually stay far away from uh stories about the cartel because i think what i don't know i because it it does really upset me because i'm like i can't believe this entire country is overwhelmed with gang violence 
yeah. the entire country. Yes, in some places it's, it's maybe safer to be than others, but like it has gotten to a point where it's like ugh, people are afraid to go. And it's like, yeah. that should never be the case. Like Mexico, the people and the culture and everything about Mexico, the history is so lush and beautiful and it's been destroyed and it's so sad. It, I'm like tearing up just talking about it. It yeah. is, um, it's devastating. And you, and I feel horrible for the people there, you know, and we'll, we'll talk about the history of the cartel later but you got to think well you know maybe there's a reason why people are trying to leave hello you yeah know? yeah so uh, <laughs> yeah we could go off on a whole tangent about just i'm that, sure but like i'm sure we will <laughs> like, later oh but <laughs> we gotta finish this part <laughs> i know um in an interview with cheryl eddie lopez stated quote there were no tigers in the movie in the original script but i'm one of those filmmakers who keeps rewriting constantly and weeks before going to the set i was doing my visual path of the movie and i found in myself and i found in myself because i was creating this city that was a ghost town it's being reclaimed by nature and animals start taking over Movies like 12 Monkeys, you remember the wild animals? It's such a strong visual. I thought it would make for a really cool image to have the kids doing graffiti, then turning around to see a wild animal at the end of the street. The explanation would be right there. Drug lords create private zoos for themselves, and the animals could have escaped." Unquote. Lopez also mentions some of the other ideas she picked before <laughs> some of the other ideas for animals she picked out before she decided on tigers. Um, can you guess which animals? <laughs> no. <laughs> a zebra and a hippo. <laughs> oh, no! Can you imagine? Hippos okay. are not afraid. <laughs> but listen, hippos are actually terrifying, first of all. Second of all, that reminds me, there is a documentary called Hippo Supremacy. Okay. <laughs> And it's about how terrifying hippos are. <laughs> so. I mean, they are. They're huge. They're huge. And they could crush you with their mouth. Like, their mouths are, are massive. And you could just get eaten alive by one. So, yeah. Yes. You're right. right. They are. <laughs> Zebras, though, all I think of is that really disappointing gum that we all ate in the 90s. <laughs> like had the flavor for like 12 seconds and then you had to like spit it out i'm glad she went with a tiger <laughs> yeah me too and i mean like <laughs> listen um <laughs> to be fair the hippo was never really going to be an option it just happened to be the animal that was suggested to her instead of a zebra <laughs> which i don't know why she would go with zebra i mean zebras are cool looking but like a tiger's a tiger is more impactful <laughs> yeah. um, well, so she wisely chose a tiger i wonder if it's just because zebras you know they're what you think of when you think of like lions going after prey at least for me sure because then that's, that's what you point. see on all like the nature documentaries is like zebras trying to outrun lions or you know whatever whatever lives yeah. on the savannah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I'm sure she maybe explains in a different interview, but I couldn't quite find out because she asked the the animal handlers in, in Mexico that she was like, what do you guys have? And they're like, well, because she's like, do you have a zebra? And they're like, no, but we have a hippo. And she was like, Meh. 
So they gave they gave her a list, and on the list she saw that they had tigers, and so she was like, "Oh, how about we do tigers?" Okay. So yeah, that's what happened. But I'm not sure where the zebra came from. I don't know why she went with the zebra the first time around. Yeah. Oh my god. So according to Jay Roar, quote at TIFF talks. Isa Lopez mentioned how casting saw about 600 children. Ultimately, Whoa. they settled on performers without acting experience. It's always a gamble, chancing an untrained individual, hoping they bring a certain authenticity to a role. And according to Lopez, it's supposed to feel almost like a war documentary. The performances needed to support this illusion and need to be unquestionably true, which means that these kids had to go deep into fear. It's a scary mm. story. To create fear, lead actor Paolo Lara and I would go into a dark room and, you know how when you're a kid and you scare yourself, we would do that together and I would be scared too. I would tell her, close your eyes and bring her to the set and then I'd say, action! And she would believe the emotion that we had found. But then once we've gotten there, you have to bring them out because those are intense emotions and dark ones. It was a matter of when I said, cut, taking her hands and going, look me in the eyes, it's over. It's a game. Ghosts are not real. Your parents are fine. The, and these are actors in makeup and you know it. You break the spell, unquote. Oh, what an empowering thing for such young actors to hear. Yeah, and speaking of spells and magic, <laughs> Guillermo, <laughs> Guillermo del Toro, <laughs> so oh this, yes so of course he comes into play here so this film has been compared to death to fellow mexican film to the fellow mexican filmmakers dark ghostly thrillers obviously um a lot of people compared it to um the devil's backbone mm, yep. so lopez said quote i had been trying to reach del toro since i wrote the script through mutual acquaintances, but it was impossible. Now I completely understand why. He is completely flooded with scripts all the time. But at yeah. the time, I was disappointed. Then I made the movie, and people were constantly comparing it to Del Toro's work and asking me if he'd seen it. So I would say, no, but go on Twitter and tell him. And people did. Eventually, he talked to someone in the press in Mexico around the time he was nominated for the Oscar. And he said, if you're in contact with this woman please tell her to send the movie and then she laughs and she goes and then i did and he watched it and then spoiler alert guillermo del toro really liked the film and he praised it on twitter that's awesome so the film did well amongst critics and audiences alike and it was released exclusively on shutter and amc plus to stream in 2019 on how her movie specific to mexico's troubles has landed internationally Lopez told NPR, what is striking is I set out to make a movie about a very peculiar, particular situation, which is what Mexico is going through right now. But I found that many of the themes that the movie touches upon, you can find them across the world. For example, there is a gender violence happening in the movie, which is the origin of the story. In Canada, Native women are disappearing in big numbers. I think that I'm ashamed to say I didn't know. And then you play the movie in a city like Belfast, where they still have walls to divide one side from the other, and they understand bullets flying around town. It is not a good thing that the movie is understood deeply in so many places. It's actually worrisome." Unquote. Yeah. 
According to Jumko Ogata Aguilar, quote, shining a light on the children that drug trafficking and gang-related violence leaves orphaned, I like that this film offers a voice to a part of the Mexican population whose stories are rarely told. The true horrors of the movie aren't ghosts and monsters, but rather the realities Estrella and the other children face every day. And if not for the directors like Isa Lopez, we would only have films and TV shows that speak about the realities of a very limited group of filmmakers." Unquote. And according to Shia Vassar, quote, Lopez is as much of an activist as an artist. During a Wednesday night Q&A at IFC Center in New York, she stated that we filmmakers have a responsibility to tell the stories that we need to tell, to talk about issues no one else is willing to talk about. Tigers Are Not Afraid is evidence of this mission. Lopez hopes this film can be a comfort to those who have been hurt by similar events and a reminder that death is not always an ending, but a beautiful beginning, unquote. I like that. Yes. So let's get into our discussion. Um, let's start off with a brief history of Mexican cartel horror. Yes. Um, the reason why I wanted to touch upon this in this episode is not to bring attention to the cartel itself, but to maybe have our listeners um, briefed on a little bit of the history of, you know, why people are fleeing Mexico and right. why it is, you know, considered as bad as it is because the cartel has just infiltrated such a beautiful, beautiful place. So this whole breakdown, um, basically this brief history comes from an extremely informative article from The Guardian uh, that was written by Associated Press in Mexico. Um, so it was actually published in 2017, so it's a little old, but it gives some really good information about, you know, things that have happened within the last couple of decades within Mexico's borders. So why did Mexico launch its war on drugs? Um, on December 10th, 2006, Felipe Calderon launched Mexico's war on drugs by sending 6,500 troops into his home state of I, I believe it's called Mihuacan, uh, where rival cartels were engaged in tit-for-tat massacres. Wow. Yeah. Calderon declared war eight days after taking power, a move widely seen as an attempt to boost his own legitimacy after bitterly contested election victory. Within two months, around 20,000 troops were involved in operations. That's a fuck ton of troops. <laughs> that is that and that's just mexican troops yeah yeah oh my god yeah um so what has the war cost so far the u.s has donated at least 1.5 billion through the merida initiative since 2008 while Mexico has spent at least $54 billion on security <gasps> and defense between 2007 and 2016. And for what? Has, it hasn't gotten better, has it? Not really. Not really. Oh my god. Critics say that this influx of cash helped to create an opaque security industry open to corruption. Oh, great. So we basically just donated to the cartel. Yes. Oh yes. my god. Oh, that's terrible. 
Yeah. Tell me about it. Um, but the biggest costs have been human. Since 2007, over 250,000 people have been murdered. More than 40,000 reported as disappeared and 26,000 unidentified bodies in morgues across the country. And this was in 2017. So there are larger numbers now. Human rights groups have also detailed a vast rise in human rights abuses, including torture, extrajudicial killings, and forced disappearances by state security forces. Pina Nieto claimed to have killed or detained 110 of 122 of his government's most wanted narcos. But his biggest victory and most embarrassing blunder was the recapture, escape, another recapture, and extradition of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, leader of the Sinaloa cartel. Mexico's decade-long war on drugs would never have been possible without the injection of American cash and military cooperation under the Merida Initiative. Mm -hmm. The funds have continued to flow despite indisputable evidence of human rights violations. Also, we're sending troops there. Right. To do what? To do what? <laughs> right. <sighs> so, under new president Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador, murder rates are up, and a new security force, the Civil Guard, is being deployed onto the streets despite campaign promises to end the drug war. So, what has been achieved? <laughs> I'm sorry, I laughed because when you were like, under the new president, murder rates are up, and it's like, <laughs> mm hmm. It's, I'm laughing yep. because it's so uh, it's so terrible. Like it's my it's my coping mechanism right now. Like that yes. is oh that's terrible. If God. we don't laugh, we cry. <laughs> Pretty much because so. <laughs> we're not making fun of it. We're like no. I'm I'm astounded. I guess is what I should say. Like I'm it's, absolutely flabbergasted. Yes, it's uh <sighs> it's also exhausting. And right. this is coming from someone who is not even directly involved in, like, I will say it. I'm not directly involved in trying to improve the situation in Mexico. Right. I have, like, my fingers are completely out of the equation. I I can't imagine people who are, like, actually boots on the ground, like, trying to figure this shit out and help the people of Mexico. Oh, my God. Like, well, where do you start? Where do you begin? You know, it's like, it's such a hot mess. Where do is. you begin? And yeah. it's like, it's just a hive of, like, even, it's sort of similar to the situation in, in um, like, the Middle East. Like, you kill a member of ISIS, but somebody comes in and takes his place because there's so many. Like, it's absolutely insane. So what has been achieved? <laughs> Nothing. Or maybe something. I don't know. I'll let you yeah. explain. <laughs> um, a very, very little. There's improved collaboration between the U.S. and Mexico, and that's resulted in numerous high-profile arrests and drug busts. Officials say 25 of the 37 drug traffickers on Calderon's most wanted list have been jailed, extradited to the U.S., or killed. Although not all of these actions have been independently corroborated. So we don't actually, we don't know. We don't know. Um, oh, they could just be saying that that is true and it's maybe not true. Yeah. 
Yep. Okay. Well, pretty much. That's great. Thanks. While the crackdown and capture of kingpins has won praise from the media in the U.S., it has done little to reduce the violence. So, great. You're catching bad guys, but you're not doing anything else to systematically help people. Good times. Um, I want to add something that Lopez said for NPR. She said, quote, on developing the line of blood that follows Estrella around the movie, Lopez said, I was writing the first scenes. I created this image of a girl that has to leave school because there was a shootout right outside and she sees a dead body which happens frequently in the war culture. And she watches it for a second and then turns around and walks away. And that's not something you can do with violence. You can't turn your back and walk away. It will come after you until you look at it and you understand what's going on. And as I'm writing the scene and she turns around from the pool of blood and a, a line of blood starts following her and it became sort of, sort of the leitmotif of the movie. How death will come with you will walk with you until you accept and embrace the situation you are in, unquote. You know, I think that maybe Estrella maybe represents, I don't know, in that scene could represent us, like as the viewer, we're seeing this violence, we're seeing this, and, you know, unless we do something about it, it kind of follows us everywhere. Yeah, and absolutely. The hardest part is we don't know where to begin. What, who who do we you know the fact that we donate money the our country donates money to what and it's like how do we fix this and it's it's overwhelming in a way and that blood trail just follows us wherever we go yeah it does it's it's incredibly frustrating <laughs> you know obviously there's people who are victimized um more so than others uh let's talk about the role of women in the drug wars Yes, um, because they actually do play a very, very large role. Um, according to an article from The Dialogue detailing the role of women in cartels, quote, today, Mexican women can be found at all ranks of drug cartels, from low-level mules and watchpersons to sicarias, lieutenants, money launderers, and high-ranking decision makers. Wow. Sandra Avila a.k.a. the Queen of the Pacific, a money manager for the Sinaloa cartel, captured national media coverage in 2007 because of her glamorous image. Ugh. Whoa. Various beauty... Yeah, yeah. Various beauty queens associated with cartel members also receive lurid publicity. But the lives of tens of thousands of ordinary Mexican women in the drug business or simply living in areas with a high density of trafficking activity are all often dangerous and violent. In just the last few years, hundreds of women have been killed in Cuidad Juarez, the epicenter of drug-related violence in Mexico. So there are some really chilling things to point out here when it comes to women being used as mules. They have body cavities that can hold drugs, which allows trafficking to be very discreet. And it's something that I find particularly upsetting because it's another violation of women and their own autonomy that just kind of exacerbates how vulnerable women are in that particular area of society. And I'm not saying that, you know, men don't go through the same thing because I am positive that they must. Like, the cartel knows no bounds and they are extremely cruel. Um, but for 
for women in particular, this is such a uh, it's ju- it's just it's a such... bigger issue. And like yeah. you said, yeah, like the fact that they're literally putting smuggling drugs in their private areas. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's it's basically rape. Yeah. And that's honestly not something that really crossed my mind until I was doing research for this episode. But I was like, holy fucking shit. Like, that's something I never would have even like. Obviously, you hear about airport security, like doing right. Like, yeah. Body scans and body cavity searches and blah, blah, blah. But like. It's something that is such a regular part of this kind of culture, and it sucks. It Mm. sucks. So from that same article um, that I found in The Guardian that that I mentioned a little bit earlier, the author states that last year, 41% of murders of women happened outside the home. The increase in killings of women in public constitutes one of the most important findings of this study, which explains a good part of the recent total growth of femicides in Mexico, the report said. The study also said that while the vast majority of male homicide victims are killed with firearms, many femicides continued to be by the most cruel means, such as stabbing, beating, and strangling, which it said reflects misogyny. This means there has not been success in changing the cultural patterns that devalue women and consider them disposable, allowing for a social permissiveness in the face of violence and its ultimate expression, femicide, the report said. So just another area where women are seen as disposable, and we'll talk about it later, well, actually in our next topic, that's actually a really good segue. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's 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 move on to the next topic then. Yeah, I want to talk about how Estrella's mom sort of gets her revenge in this film. So it's never really made clear what Estrella's mother had to do with the cartel and why she ended up being killed. Um, it's it's not something that is really touched upon, but. It could have been, you know, a multitude of things that she was involved in. It could have been, like, a debt owed from her family. She could have done small, like, a small job for one of the gang members or something like that. But um, another, oh, something interesting, too, that I wanted to bring up was that in my research, I found um, there was an instance in Mexico where young people were actually working at a call center that was Mm -hmm. owned by the cartel and they were scamming people. It was like a, um, like a buy my timeshare kind of thing. Um, Oh my God. First of all, don't get timeshares. People don't inherit them. Don't get them (laughs) from anybody. (laughs) Nobody, especially the cartel. (laughs) Yes. Um, But in this, in this instance, these they were young kids. They were working at this call center, and they were setting up um, these scams and, and gathering all this money for the cartel. And then once their job was done and they reached a certain amount of money, they were just killed by the cartel. <gasps> no Just, like, way. discarded. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, probably because they didn't want people finding out about the scam, and they didn't want to trace back to them, which was you know, all for nothing because everyone was like, yeah, it was the cartel. But, um, 
it could have been something like that, you know, something that is, is just as simple as trying to get a paycheck. Um, well, that's so, the thing, you know, you, we think like, oh, why are you working for the cartel? It's like, I don't know if you understand this. They literally run everything. Yeah. They don't have a choice. If most of the time. 99.9% of the time, nobody has a choice in the matter. And it's yeah. a way for them to protect their family and themselves. And then they still get screwed over. Yep, 100%. So Ann Bilson writes for The Guardian. Um, apparently, I really like using articles from The Guardian, but. <laughs> oh, welcome. <laughs> yes. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Um, in horror movies, maternal grief or jealousy is so amplified it can persist from beyond the grave, particularly when it comes to ghosts whose very femaleness is judged by men to make them more emotionally unstable than their male counterparts, as though death has stopped their body clocks at the wrong time of the month in perpetuity. <laughs> so... <laughs> There is a monstrousness to motherly urges which have a malevolent disregard for fairness or justice. Um, but in this circumstance, I think that justice was served for sure. Um, but we see a little a bit of this in the relationship between Estrella and her mom. Um, I think Estrella feels like it's her duty to help her mom come to terms with what has happened to her by aiding in her revenge against the cartel. So in a way, I guess I could see how that would be kind of unfair to Estrella. Um, because, you know, she's a kid and it isn't exactly her job to exact revenge, but maybe she feels obligated to help her mom. Um, so her mom is still kind of like nagging her from beyond the grave. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think, well, and as a ghost, you know, I feel like, uh, and maybe you touch on this, I'm not sure, but when you're a ghost and you've died in such a terrible way, I can see like your, your vengeful spirit being a bit of a nag, you know? Yes. Oh my because God. it's not yeah. really you anymore. It's like the essence of the the violence and the essence of the of the death is what is like left and yes. so it's like after her mom gets revenge that's when her mom becomes a peaceful ghost maybe yes yes exactly um we don't so like i was you know talking about earlier we don't really know a lot about estrella's mom and her involvement with the cartel um but she becomes kind of a mother figure to the corpses that she's found with when she's finally mm -hmm. discovered by Estrella. It's almost like she becomes their leader. Yeah. Um. So we could probably assume that this is because she's separated from her child on an earthly level. So she kind of like picks right back up where she left off when she was killed. Right. And this is kind of interesting because on that earthly level, Estrella does the same thing. She just kind of keeps on going with this ragtag group of boys and she kind of becomes like a sort of mother figure to them. So well, um, that comes up when I talk about Peter Pan later, but heck yeah. Wendy, everyone calls Wendy mother when she like yes. goes to Neverland and becomes the mother of the lost boys because she's the only girl. So it's interesting. Right. Exactly. Um, 
Another thing, too, is whenever we see Estrella's mother, we see that line of blood following her every move, like the one we were just talking about. Um, And I think that this is, like, this quite literally has to do with bloodlines, like Mm. how the ghosts of your bloodline follow you in circumstances like this and how it can make you a marked person just because of who you share your DNA with. So. This is kind of a pervasive part of the culture in Mexico right now, the the drug culture, at least, because it gets people killed. And it's completely unfair because it's something that you really have zero control over. And that plays into the fear that, like, drug lords use to intimidate and hold on to control when it comes to the lower classes of Mexico. Um, So that that imagery of like you can't outrun your bloodline like we know who you are and where you come from and who you belong to and it's not something that you're able to outrun i think that just adds another layer of fear to this film it's like oh my god it it it's not something that you can just get rid of right um so to kind of um wrap up this topic a little bit, there is also a lot to be said about the suffering of mothers in places like Mexico. So if you think about it, like childbirth and child rearing is already a huge task. It is so hard. And I cannot imagine the deep grief of losing children to things like war and poverty and violence. Um, But It's a sad reality that so many face all over the world, and I think it's fair to say that revenge should be executed by a mother (laughs) because their loss is so great. Like, you're bringing a life into the world only to get it taken away from you by something that is completely unnecessary and driven by greed. And, you know, I'm not saying that mothers are the only ones who feel it because obviously that is not true, but it is really satisfying to watch a mother get what she deserves after suffering so much and like having to watch her child basically from the grave and she can't really help her at all. I'm, I'm really, really glad that she's the one who kind of gets to (laughs) inflict suffering on on the bad people in this film so right and you know so something that just came to me is that i think we don't know what estrella's mom did to get killed but Mm -hmm. i think the point is that it doesn't matter right right it doesn't matter doesn't matter what her role was with the cartel it doesn't matter if she was even a part of it the cartel mm-hmm. she could have just been walking home with groceries and just yeah. attacked because she's a woman you know yeah. and so it's just like i think that's the point it doesn't matter what the mom did or didn't do to die the point is that she didn't deserve it either way yes yeah and that is like the sad part about it it is and that's a really, really good point, and I think that Lopez probably left it ambiguous on purpose, right? Because, because of it that doesn't reason. matter. It doesn't matter. She didn't deserve it, no matter what. Yeah, 
Oh God. Yeah. So let's okay. talk about let's let's talk about the 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 room with all the bodies, the corpse room as a <laughs> it's a womb tomb. I'm a- <laughs> oh God. I got oh. a little I got a little out of control with the title of this topic. The corpse you- room is a womb tomb. <laughs> you did. <laughs> oh man. But I did okay. laugh because I imagined you writing it and be like <laughs> You're exactly right. <laughs> okay, so um, we're going to talk about fairy tales in just a second. So I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too far, but I feel like this story um, kind of is about the path back to where we come from. Um, mm. So we can look at this journey and destination in many different ways, but it's been commonly accepted that women in many cultures are the storytellers because they hold this ancient wisdom and life lessons and recipes and folk stories and all all that really fun stuff i think that because women follow this um, cyclical pattern of the life cycle that this story works really well as that kind of circular sort of storytelling pattern so i looked at this a couple different ways for the first scenario Estrella sort of plays a role in establishing a lost hero. Uh, Shaina. Shaina is our lost hero. I know, so cute. I know. And Estrella leads him to his final destination, which also happens to be her final destination as well. And this heavily symbolizes the beginning and end so like i was saying it's that circular story estrella came from her mother so she must go back to her mother so she's got to make it back to the room with all of the bodies and the return to the womb yes it's a womb um and all those people in it yes a womb doom All (laughs) all those people in it return to the womb as well and they come here to die so that they can be reborn for a specific purpose. And that is to obtain justice for how they died. So that was, that was kind of my first thought with this story. My, my second thought is that Mexico and the city that the kids live in kind of symbolizes the broken down body of the motherland and all the children are just trying to find their home and they've kind of forgotten where they come from because of the trauma. And, you know, they kind of, they don't forget their parents, but it's like there's a reason why Shina holds on to the cell phone because it has the only picture of his mother and he's kind of like forgotten everything else surrounding mm. that. So they don't really have a home within their mother because their real mothers are dead so they journey with this kind of chosen family within this like broken down city like a a kind of a broken down body if you think about it so that's kind of how i thought of this film is that you know it's that that path to kind of finding who you were at the beginning of the story and you know why things happen the way that they do 
And I think I I want to say that Estrella really is the only one who gets that story. Everyone else is just kind of left to wander. So I think it is done on purpose because she is, you know, she's the only female in the group of boys. There are so many of these like lost boys and lost kids and they don't really have a sense of direction because of the devastation from the cartel. So really all in all, it's like their home is just this desolate place where they don't have anyone to show them the way or or teach them kind of like their mother would. You know, the thing is, is that at the end of the film, when Estrella walks off, you really see um, the beauty of Mexico. The, yes. The mountains in the background, the beautiful field, the greenery, the blue sky. I mean, Mexico is a beautiful country. It is an mm -hmm. absolutely gorgeous country. And I guess it's sort of like, yes, the home that they know has been destroyed, but um, I think they still consider it home. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's still it's still kind of is their home and they're trying to find ways to navigate it in its new setting and finding the beauty that yes. maybe is missed, you know? And I think as Americans, it's good for us to see that Mexico is not just the cartel. Mexico is so much more and beyond, you know? Right. So it's it should be celebrated. Well, I think too it's important that the kids find these fragments of really beautiful things within the ruin like the koi pond and yes you know playing soccer in the build like finding all of the soccer balls and kind of making them their own and and that kind of thing i think that that really is a kind of sort of the crux of this story is that like as outsiders, we're seeing all of these broken down buildings and, oh, like, it's so violent. It's so scary, like you were saying. But there is still so much beauty within the people. I think she did a really, really good job portraying that in this film. For sure. I do, too. I think that, you know, she loves her country and I, she absolutely should. And I think she's devastated about what's going on with it. And, um, yeah, I respect that a lot. And. I think that's why this film is so great. Um, yeah. Because she loves her country. So. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into our final thought, which is the role of classic fairy tales and gothic horror in Tigers Are Not Afraid. Yeah. So according to, yeah. So according to Amber Sparks, quote, do you know how to write a fairy tale? Then you know how to write a horror story too. A horror story is more or less a fairy tale turned inside out, unquote. And we'll talk a bit about this inversion in a second, but there are many similarities between the gothic horror and fairy tales, and it's all presented in Tigers. Um, we mentioned the mother earlier. Well, her ghostly appearance is actually extremely gothic. According mm -hmm. to Gothic Tropes, Absent Mothers, uh, a Mother's Day post by Julia, quote, uh, the archetypal gothic heroine is an orphan, if not missing both parents, at least missing a mother. And the absence of a mother also removes the safety of the female domestic sphere and leaves the heroine vulnerable in the realm dominated by men." Unquote. So this is precisely what Estrella goes through. In fact, mm -hmm. 
the only other woman in the story that we see alive and not in a flashback or on a camera is her teacher her fairy godmother if you will oh yeah because yes, she gives her the power so estrella is quite literally thrown into a world full of toxic masculine energy with only the innocent lost boys as i like to call them as mm -hmm. her companions and even they are guys you know yeah yeah men and women being friends and close in a platonic way is super important but we've spoken about this before on the podcast female friends and companions and family are of great significance to women's mental and physical health yes to have all trace of female connection gone from Estrella's life is detrimental to her well-being. And according to Amanda G. Sawyer's quote, the world of Gothic literature was dangerous for women of all stations as threats of imprisonment, forced marriage, and rape often lurked around every corner. However, mothers in these novels are subject to a unique danger. The mothers created by Lewis, Radcliffe, and others are often dead before the events of the novel, or they meet a horrific end with the novel's pages solely to promote the horror and sensationalism. The danger and the psychological trauma that these daughters endure is imperative to the core of Gothicism. If the mothers were present to guide and protect their daughters from their evil male relatives and other typical Gothic dangers, there would not be a story to tell while these novels adapted the absent mother trope as a means to shock and incite excite audiences other authors began to experiment with it as a means to discuss and examine the impact a mother's absence would have on the development of young female protagonists unquote so estrella is isolated but amber spark says quote in fairy tales and in horror, that isolation makes magic and menace possible. The kind of magic, though, makes all the difference. In fairy tales, the home is often a place to leave, but in horror, it's often the place you can't leave." Unquote. Now, Estrella is able to leave her home, like in a fairy tale, but not because she is off to find her fortune, like Jack in the English tale with the same name, but because she is scared of it now that her mother's spirit is haunting it. However, mm. yeah, however, her mother's spirit, the ghost, follows her from the home. So in a way, Estrella has never really left her home. So there's the mix between the fairy tale and the horror right there. Ah. Yes. According to Alison Littlewood, quote, In many ways, fairy tales could be seen as the first horror studies, full of terrors such as the death of a parent, being eaten alive, or being abandoned, unquote. Ooh. Well, yeah. Well, we know two of those things are legitimate fears for the children in Tigers, right? Their parents are dead and they've basically been abandoned in that sense. According to David Boudinot, quote, fear and violence in many forms have permeated societies around the world since the beginning of time. So it is no surprise that these themes are prevalent in folk and fairy tales. 
tales of monsters eating children, parents beating their young, and witches putting spells and curses on beautiful maidens are only a few of the many fantastical examples of violence, cruelty, and fear evident in folk tales." Unquote. So Estrella lives in a dangerous land that is only dangerous because of the evil men that make it and let it happen. They are the wolves and they are the witches that enact mm -hmm. the violence. Yes. Probably the largest indicator of this being a fairy tale is Estrella's magic chalk and her three wishes. Now, according to Ogata Aguilar, quote, the three wishes she has granted become a coping mechanism for the trauma she faces, a way to explain the unexplainable explainable, and give her some comfort over the lack of control she has over her circumstances, unquote. So this film is super meta because Estrella's teacher gives her the chalk after they are discussing writing their own fairy tales in class. So Estrella puts herself into a fairy tale in order to survive the horrific things happening around her. Mm -hmm. And you could argue that the wishes aren't real, like Shine believes, and that everything is Estrella's imagination. And this is where, like, I feel like I'm kind of falling into. Obviously, there are things that happen that are kind of unexplainable. But if you kind of look at it this way, this all could be in her imagination and all the wishes are sort of circumstantial. Mm -hmm. And as much as you maybe accept the ghost, but you could be imagining your mom's ghost. Who knows? Yeah. As much as you want to believe magic exists outside of belief itself, it actually doesn't. Like, that's kind of the whole point in magic. It has to be believed in to exist. Yes. And this is why Estrella sees what she sees, I think. And I think this is why Chino is killed by the ghost, because Estrella believes it to happen. And honestly, maybe Chino believes he is killed by them as well, because... Mm -hmm he is too scared or something of it you know yes. like his fear overwhelms him yeah now nadia moraga who helps us write these episodes she's amazing she does it out of the goodness of her heart y'all like she's the best she mentioned something to me that really stuck with me estrella's wishes are less like fairy tale wishes and more like the wishes made in the W.W. Jacobs short story, The Monkey's Paw. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that story, I strongly urge you to read it. It's very creepy. Mm. But for reference here, you know, I mean, it's old, so it's like, I, I kind of have to spoil it. Sorry, you had your chance to read it. <laughs> but for reference here to what we're saying, the wishes that the married couple make on the magical mummified monkey's paw in the story are twisted and inverted and they result in unwanted consequences mm -hmm. and i think the best example is that after the couple's son dies they wish for him to return and it is heavily implied that he returns to them as a walking corpse and yeah. he's like on the other side of the door so they don't see him but they hear him walking towards the door like they hear him coming into the room that they're about to like that they're in it's very scary it's very creepy so when terrible things happen to us we use magic wishes and fairy tales to help us cope but i think the inverted wishes in this movie shows us that sometimes fantasy is an enemy at least it is long term yeah and i guess there's a reason why we say 
be careful what you wish for, you know? And according Mm -hmm. to Caroline Seed, quote, for people whose worlds aren't already safe, fairy tales can take on a whole new meaning. They become a way to process the scariest, most unpredictable aspects of a world that's impossible to control, unquote. Yeah, yeah, Um, for sure. Yeah, and I, but I think if we hold on to that too long, things start to maybe not turn out the way we thought they would, like wishing for Shine's scar to go away, you know, yeah. and then he's, and then he's killed right after. It's not until Estrella doesn't have any more wishes to make that she's able to be free. Yeah. And she's sort of let goes of that fantasy. And she walks, you know, into the green field, into the real world, and maybe it's really hard to deal with. But she's gotten through it and she's survived because she used fairy tales as a short-term coping mechanism to get to where she needs to go. Well, it's like, it sort of symbolizes the end of her childhood, right? I don't know. You imagine all of these things and, and you wish for these things, but you don't understand. It's like when a kid says like, oh, I I wish I had like $100. That's so much money. And then you as an adult are like, that's literally like no money, kid. <laughs> that's all I have. And I wish I had yeah. more. Yeah. Yes. yes. Right. Exactly. So they, they just, they have a different perspective on it because maybe they don't know any better. And you kind of watch Estrella grow up really quickly in this film. Right, which in a sense is kind of a fairy tale in itself. Like, I'll mention this later, but first I want to talk about how this film has a really interesting connection to Peter Pan. Um, So according to Seed, quote, Estrella joins Shine and his small band of orphaned kids in their makeshift home. Quote, we forget who we are, she narrates, when the things from outside come to get us, unquote. Um, So Estrella and Shine are the Peter and Wendy figures for Shine's trios of lost boys. There's Tuxie, Pop, and Moro, who is too traumatized by what he's seen to speak. In place of Michael Darling's teddy bear, he carries around a stuffed tiger, unquote. So um, the we forget who we are is a key here because in Neverland, you forget your life before you arrive. You forget your parents, especially your mother, although you knew you had a mother once. Estrella writes the story of the prince who wanted to become a tiger while she is in class. That story turns out to be true. It is the story of Shine. And in some versions of the story of Peter Pan, and I believe it's actually in the original story, Wendy tells the story of Peter Pan to her brothers, and Peter comes to the window to hear Wendy tell stories about himself. (laughs) And in other versions of Peter Pan, Wendy is actually telling the story of Cinderella, another well-known fairy tale in which a young maiden is given a chance to dance with a prince thanks to a ghostly mother, uh, I mean, a fairy godmother. Mm -hmm. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Like most fairy tales and horror films, there is a final girl, a princess, and she survives the murderous Bluebeard, the killer, and she is free. But as Amber Sparks writes, quote, the survivors may not have been eaten by the wolf, but they'll dream of him every night as long as they live, unquote. So to conclude this part, I want to reference... Women Who Run With Wolves by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. 
and go back to how the dead good mother in fairy tales is really just a metaphor for growing up, for mm -hmm. leaving your mother and becoming an adult woman. You don't have your mother physically with you, but her spirit or her wisdom follow you wherever you go. And according to the article Magic Realism in Contemporary Mexican Cinema, quote, even though the tiger is real, and tigers are not afraid, it appears magical due to its significance. The tiger is a symbol of strength. It holds the memory of the killed boy and closes out a chapter in the children's lives. The plush tiger has turned into a real one, and those kids that survived the horrific events of the film became adults. Estrella grew up from a girl into a woman, unquote. So ah. she, be, she started out as a cub or a stuffed tiger toy, and she became a real tiger. She became a woman after this experience. Mm -hmm. And that is very fairy tale like. The princess defeats the witch, marries the prince, you know, in a fairy tale. Um, or she defeats Bluebeard and runs off and becomes free. So the genre bending of this film might be tonally off for a lot of people, even if it works aesthetically. Because we don't expect fairy tales and horror to merge so, like, I don't know, so gracefully. And we don't expect children to die in fairy tales, even though it happens all of the time. The original Little Red Riding Hood ends with her being eaten by the wolf and not saved by Huntsman. Huntsman was later added. And the little boy in the juniper tree is killed by his stepmother and then eaten by his father. Like, horror Ugh. and fairy tales are one in the same. And Tigers, I think, is a great example of that. This is such an interesting way of looking at this story because it is applicable to what happens in real life, but it's almost um, unbelievable because the story is so fantasy-based. Mm -hmm. That, I believe, is why this is such a frightening film because to these children, this is real. And right. As the audience, we can explain it away, like we're adults, we're like, no, oh, that can never happen. But the underlying reality is that their fears are based in something that is real, and it's mm -hmm. awful. And it is for sure a war story, like kind of what Lopez says in a couple like different quotes, like it's almost like a war documentary. Yeah, and I mean, Gus Wood points out Tigers plays by no rules of genre because it wants us to focus on its story, on its children, on its 86-minute fairy tale about children in peril that must be brave, must be human, and must dream and tell stories. So because of this, Tigers is a horror film, a children's movie, a coming-of-age tale, a love story, a drama, a comedy, and the best version of them all, all at once, unquote. I, I think that's perfect. Yes, I do too. And um, there's another quote by Lopez um, where she was being interviewed by NPR. And she said, I think that if you're attempting to bring these things to the conversation of the social classes that make the decisions in Mexico, which is the middle class and upper class, they don't want to watch movies about children suffering because of political corruption. So what you do is you make a movie of a genre that makes it easier. And the interesting phenomenon was that it worked around the world. 
I think it's important to understand what are the true horrors that these children are facing, especially when two years after the movie opened at a festival for the first time, we find ourselves in a version of the United States where children that cross the border to survive this drug war are being put in cages. So it's particularly mm. urgent. And if horror is going to be the way to deliver this message, fantastic. Let's go with it. And that's the other thing, too. It's like these kids are in cages in the movie. And then yeah. if they cross the border, they're in cages here. These kids have nowhere to go. And we're all yeah. to blame for that. Yep. So suck on that. <laughs> yeah. oh, think about oh, it, won't God. you? Yes, please, please do. Well, everyone, that's it for this month's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed our episode. Shout out to Nadia Moraga for helping us out. Uh, She is amazing, and we are incredibly grateful for her. And our Patreon is back. So if you have the means and appreciate our work head on over to patreon.com slash good morning nancy and honestly y'all even just two dollars a month is extremely helpful to us both it at least pays for a cup of coffee while we do our research so if you can give that would be great thank you so much (laughs) yes yes and as always a free way to support the show is by following us on social media instagram at good morning nancy and also reposting or retweeting our content really helps others find our show also word of mouth tell your friends spread the word that would be super sweet yes and thank you again for listening stay safe out there we love you all to death have a good morning bye